mean, I know Dune's been out for a bit now. Yeah, like I'm looking forward to that 40 new. Forty years. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that new. Is it a film or a series? A series, isn't it? I think it? it's a series, but it does look rather nice. And I'm particularly, I'm particularly taken, being a bit of a. I don't know whether anybody. Um, excuse me, dinging. Um, I don't know whether anybody is aware of this. Um, but I quite like aviation. I'm, I'm, I'm quite into aeroplanes. Really? Yeah. Um, I never have guessed. I'm, I'm a bit of a. Oh, you kept that quiet. What you'd call? What would you call it? I suppose, like a train spotter, but planes. Train plane. A train plane. That's right. I'm a bit of a train plane. Um, but in the new series of Dune, they appear to have actually had a legit go at portraying ornithopters. Because you see them on the on the on the trailer, or the teaser or whatever it is, mm-hmm. zipping about the place with wings on them like dragonflies. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, this, this, this is the content I'm here for. This is the wholesome content that I that I come to Arrakis for. I suppose we ought to record a Frithcast, didn't we? I might plan on doing that. Yeah. Anyway, there are ornithopters in the new series, and I'm very happy about it. Welcome to Frithcast. <laughs> what? Presenting. Hello, lovely listeners. Hello. Welcome to the episode that starts <laughs> with ornithopters. Welcome to Frithcast 101. How do we follow episode 100? How do um, we even... I can't even... I, I don't... I can't... Yeah, no. I, I can't really episode know. today. I mean... Obviously, you follow it by recording a load of a lo- <laughs> you re- by recording us shouting nonsense at each other, right? And then you call it episode one hundred and one, and you fling it up on Podbean. That's how you do it. Let's do that then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Please carry on. Thank you. Okay. Hello, lovely listeners. Hello. We hope you've managed to clear away all your steamers, uh, steamers, streamers. And detritus from the party of episode 100. <laughs> and you're just kind of in that sort of post-party chill-out space and there's a whole kind of campfire embers going on. It's a nice warm evening. I always like that bit. There's a whole kind of, you know, long sunset through the trees thing going on. I mean, and we're just sort of sat in that mellow space. Don't get That's me wrong, I, do, I do like the dancing around the fire as well. Oh, Yeah. Don't, don't mind a bit of that, but right now we're in that kind of mellow, like, post-celebratory kind of chill-out zone thing. We do our best. Yeah. So, in answer to your question, um, how do you follow episode 100? Well, I have this idea that I might 
suggest a, a, a title All right, then, for the on, show, then. Yeah, yeah. which is going to be episode 101. That's Yes, I, I can see the logic in that. It was a little bit step too far for me there, but I've got with you. I'm with you. We could That's do episode good. episode 100.25 and like work up to it. No, no, this is good. We can take that bigger step. You want to do the whole, yeah. the whole thing? Yeah, okay, episode 101. And that's my contribution over to you. Okay, thanks. And you can decide what, we, what we're going to talk about. I know you happen to have an idea. I, I might happen to have an idea. Would you like to tell the dear, the dear, dear, the dear listeners, the dear listeners, the lovely listeners, the, the gorgeous lovely, listeners. Li- the lovely, lovely listeners. The delicious listeners. Steady. Okay. Um, <laughs> Hello, deli- lovely listeners. Delicious friends. <laughs> Steady. Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome around the virtual campfire. Settle in, grab a hot drink, mug of choice, kettles on, come and settle on a log. Warm your knees. Warm your knees. Warm yep. your knees. We've been saying it for 101 episodes. I'm 101 not going to stop now. And we haven't even made a hashtag out of it yet. We have not made a hashtag. That's a good point. We can do that, can't we? Hashtag warm your knees. Yeah. Damn right. Mm. If the mentor pilot guy can make a hashtag out of absolutely fantastic, because he always greets people at the beginning of his his his, uh, his videos, he always says, "I hope you have hope you're feeling absolutely fantastic." Okay. So that's his little hashtag. If he can do that, we can damn well have warm your knees. Let's do that then. All right. Done. Warm your knees, lovely listeners. Hope you don't Settle just in. bear with us, listeners, while we just do admin. <laughs> <laughs> we do admin. <laughs> Settle in and come and join myself. I'm Suzanne Martin. I'm a heathen with a head full of stuff, some of which is useful. And I'm Kate. And I'm not a heathen. I'm a sort of a, I'm a sort of a druidy Roman witchy thing kind yeah, of deal with um, at the yeah, moment yeah. a mug full of rum, um, with coffee in it. <laughs> with coffee in it, and that's the closest I can get to information. <laughs> Lovely listeners, welcome to episode 101 of Frithcast. Yay! That was pretty good. Thank you. Wow. Did you practice that and everything? I practiced it for the length of time that was necessary to achieve that level of quality, yes. I'm in awe. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Well, today we're just at the end of February 2021. Mm-hmm. And ordinarily, in February, you and I would have gone to Jorvik for a week, because we usually do, to go to the Viking Festival. Indeed, this is the city of York in the United Kingdom, in England. Yeah, and we tend to book time off work, Mm -hmm. and we tend to book a place to stay, and we go to the city for a full week. And that is, is one of our regular... Not holidays, because it's kind of a bit more spiritual than that. It's a bit of a kind of a, a spiritual renewal place almost for a week. It's kind of somewhere between a holiday and a pilgrimage. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a place of special spiritual importance, let's put it that way. A retreat? Yeah. It's not really it's a retreat, because like, we, we don't sort of go and like hide in reclusive thing. But it's like we go along, we go and do events and things, we yeah. go, go to talks and workshops and all that kind of stuff yeah we do some of the academic lectures we do the crafting workshops we go and see the traders we talk to the same people year on year we go and have food in favorite places yeah it becomes something of a week-long ritual for us to go this year we've not been able to go 
Because talk. No, I'm not going to start getting pol- political. Oh, we could. We could just go bloody Torchwood. We could go bloody Torchwood. I was thinking bloody Tories, but yeah. <laughs> Other political parties are available. They are, and they'd have done a damn sight better job of handling this too. We don't do. Po- I'm shocked. We don't do politics shocked. on our podcast. Totally anyway, don't. for reasons completely unrelated to politics, um, the United Kingdom has continued to suffer the heavy, rather heavier, heavy effects of COVID nineteen. Yes. For rather longer than a lot of other countries. Um, Which so has we meant have... that a lot of regular festivals and events have been either postponed or cancelled, or like the Jorvik Viking Festival this year, have went completely online. We thought for this Frithcast. Jorvik is a very special place for us both, mm-hmm. for different reasons. But one of the reasons the Jorvik Viking Festival is there is because there was a very distinctive, fairly long-term archaeological dig in the city, in what they call urban archaeological dig, which brings its own complications to rural archaeological digs. Um, and ones on beaches when the tide comes in every 12 hours. Those yeah. are just spectacularly unfunny woodhenge oh god yes no um (laughs) so what i wanted to talk about was a little bit about viking york and why they have jorvik viking center there Mm -hmm. and why they then choose to do a viking festival every year and it's the biggest one in europe and often reenactors and traders and academics when the travel restrictions are lifted will come in from all across Europe to this one city in the north of England, often for the full week, mm. to be around and just talk shop. And that's why I love going. So I wanted to talk a little bit today about that archaeological dig, some of the finds that were there, some of the stuff they found at Jorvik was unique mm. and isn't replicated in any other places uh, not only in the in this country, but in some cases in the world, you don't find what you've got at York. It is what they call a unique assemblage, a unique collection of artefacts that came out of that dig. Okay. Now, the, the dig is at a place called Coppergate, which is nothing to do with copper. No, you see, this threw, this threw me because I've always, whenever I've heard Coppergate, obviously, I think of it as the English word copper and I think... Um, it's either going to be a police officer, probably not, um, or it's going to be the nice, shiny metal. Mm. Um, but it is not. It means something else. It's Yeah, it comes... Gat or gate, where we get gate from, means street. Yep. So you end up with, like, Micklegate. Yep. Big street. Because a gate is the way. Yes. This is the way. This is the way. Um... A gate is the way, and it's and we think of the gate as the, the 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 structure that blocks the way. Yeah. But it's actually referring to the gap in the wall or the gap in the fence. The through fair that, that is lets the way you go through. through. Yeah. yeah. So gate Cooper Gate is not the street of copper makers or coppersmiths, mm-hmm. but Cooper the street of cups. Okay. Cup makers, so they would have had it's named after one of the industries that they found evidence of right on this dig site and it's york archaeological trust who published this stuff fairly extensively because it is a huge huge site archaeological digs are often very lucky 
to get a season of funding and yeah. that's often a summer so between four and six weeks the dig at, at coppergate in york was five years wow and that is just that is mind-blowingly that is huge so it's five years uh, 1976 to 1981 they excavated five years they excavated a thousand meters of trench square meters square meters massive 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 areas that they were able to very painstakingly strip back and retrieve the artifacts out of okay now there's a few things about that thousand square meter space <laughs> when you have a, a some archaeologists will say yes there's a standard trench size and some archaeologists will go what what is this standard trench size we don't have one of those because every site is different and every trench is different but ideally when you're doing um uh, like an herb a, a rural dig and you're putting a trench in in the middle of a field you'll have a standard set of dimensions and they tend to be 20 meters by two by however deep you end up going okay because that's the comfortable size that a team of six can work without hitting each other with a mattock so hang on. or a spade or something else as you're kind of swinging heavy tools around right now 20 times two yeah is 40 yeah i can do that okay so that's 40 square meters mm -hmm. so 1500 did you say uh, what 1, did you 000, say a thousand about a thousand a thousand divided by what did i just say 400 mm-hmm no no 40 40 40 200 times two. Oh, 20 times two is for i can't do maths can i no i think it's probably your coffee dear probably yeah okay um anyway they, basically i was just gonna say that's quite a lot of trenches yeah but well they did it in one huge open area okay they didn't do it in like elongated trenches all right trench equivalents they were like doing measuring radiation trench equivalents <laughs> is mahusive it was this massive massive big open space 400 trench equivalent dose yes uh, it was yeah it's this huge huge big dig and they've got some photographs from the 80s of this excavation area mm. and it's massive and the thing with the coppergate site is it's it backs onto the river so you've got potential difficulties if it rains or floods yeah. it's going to flood your site out you've also got potential difficulties in the further that you go down the more the water you're liable to be working under the water table and the water's going to seep into your site sideways of course yeah yeah and let's face it for reasons i you may well touch on as we go through um york that particular area of york but york in general is prone to flooding it is fairly prone to flooding the other thing you've got to remember with urban archaeology is that if you're in what we now know is a rural area and there's always been a rural area and there was some kind of say uh neolithic defense set in what is now a field it's probably not going to be more than a meter to a meter and a half under the floor under ne where we neolithic stand. neolithic okay Depending on your deposits and depending on where your bedrock is and all of that kind of stuff, you're likely to hit Roman within about a metre down. All right. Ish, ish. That's, that's pretty shallow. Roughly, give or take. Yeah. I mean, that's if, only half the height of me. That's not really... Yeah. Well, a metre, yeah. The One of the digs, I can give an example. We were digging potentially a, a Neolithic riverside 
bed and we were looking for evidence of river changes. Mm. And that was about a metre and a half, two metres down before we hit limestone bedrock. Wow. And you're not digging this thing with a shovel. No. You're digging it in 10 centimetre strips and then cleaning it back, recording it, photographing it. Doing your Harris matrix. Oh, God, no. (laughs) Um, And then you're taking another strip a very very thin layer off it and recording again and then you're taking another thin layer off it so it's not like you can go in with a shovel no and dig it all out in half a day it's got to be done very very slowly and very very steadily and it it goes twice it goes almost double for urban archaeology because if you've got a big urban center and it's been on that site for a thousand years like york yeah where you've got layer upon layer upon layer of thick deposits of human occupation that are very deep yeah then you've got to dig a lot deeper to get back to the layer you want to see so you're looking at and presumably i mean i may be i'm leaping ahead uh you know i'm leaping out of my area of expertise because i'm i mean i understand we you've obviously Mm. talked to me many times about sort of contact context layers and 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 all that kind of thing and the fact that an archaeological excavation is is sort of Depth is proportional to time. Um, yes. Kind of, mostly. Apart from when it goes really skew-whiff. Apart from when it goes theory, really skew-whiff. So you yes, get things like, like that. I mean, you've, you've talked to me before about things like when things are disturbed by, by farm works. Yes. You know, somebody, somebody who's ploughing oh, a field regularly God, will screw we up hate the... hate the mechanical plough. <laughs> With a passion. You see but... a mechanical plough on your land, you are entitled to shoot it. No. <laughs> that might not be quite right, but it probably is a wish list of most archaeologists. Is... Yeah. Be careful, though, because it's going to ricochet. Yeah, mechanical um... ploughs are not your friend. <laughs> um, but one thing, that, j- just to, to sort of butt in um, while we're on the subject, because one thing that's always interested me, I mean, you do get bedrock. Yes. After a while, you know, you're, you've got your city or, or, or whatever. Yes, it might be on... Any amount of, I mean, like Aunt Morpork's on loan, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but it might be on all sorts of um, uh, d- different sort of soils and, and, and sands and sediments and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But ultimately, you're going to get to solid rock. Yes. What happens to your context layers? If you've got somewhere like um, a, a city where they keep building buildings, knocking buildings down, building new buildings, where people are traipsing along the, yeah, yeah. all the time. You've got rubbish are, pits dug into them and you get building fires pits, and then landfills. thing for a wall. Yeah, all of that The point happens. is everything's getting pressed down over the years. Mm-hmm. So well, you're kind of going up rather than it's going down. Well, that was what yes. I was going to say. To what extent does the city itself go up and to what extent do the context layers get compressed? The city tends to go up. Okay. Rather than the context. I mean, there is a certain amount of... If you've got organic material, there is a certain amount of collapse. Yeah. But not hugely noticeable collapse. So the city tends to rise up. Okay. It's why you get a lot of cities that are called Tel something, like Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv, yeah. The word tell means mound. Yeah. And it's because there's been settlement on that area for so many years that it's actually made a mound and the city is now on top of the mound. Okay. So it just keeps making more in that mound shape and the, the mound keeps getting higher and the city keeps going up on top of it. I suppose that, yeah, that makes sense. Do we, I mean, do we have any, I'm trying to think of equivalents here that, I know we've got lots of, lots of town names that are, that are um, or village names that are to do with hills. But yeah, that that would that would make sense. So yeah, no, I was just I was just interested because when you were obviously talking about the the, the sort of difference between rural and urban sites, 
Yes, um, urban sites, the archaeology is much deeper. Okay. And the layers tend to be a lot more complex because you've got a lot more people living in a much smaller space. Mm. Lots of industry going on, lots of trade going on. People are kind of squashed in, so they make much more intense deposits almost in the same yeah. equivalent area as you would get in a medieval village out in the middle of the wilds. Yeah. So urban deposits tend to be deeper, they tend to be more complex, and the York urban deposit... York as a, a city is built between two rivers. That's why the settlement is there. It's, a, it's not only defensible because you've got a river on both sides. Mm. So all you have to do is if the invading army is coming in is smash the bridges. Okay. And you get to stay there and they either have to wade across or wait till you go over. Yeah. So you're kind of defending it on two sides. So you've got the ooze and the hipper. I know. I, I think what you should do is you should build a kind of a bridge, right? Yeah. That you can draw up. When the enemy come along, uh, yeah, and then you don't have to smash it. I know. You can just draw it up, yeah, and then you let it down again when the. I don't know what you'd call it though. Don't know. Has to be some kind of name for it. Balloon pull, balloon bridge, or yeah, something. yeah, pull up, pull up yeah. bridge, or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, one of those. Carry on, sorry. So, <laughs> the settlement at York is is kind of prime territory between between two rivers is a very defensible place yeah, yeah a very slightly soggy and wet place but it's a very defensible place well like we were saying this is this is why this is why york is is tends to be quite floodable easily it's floodable sad but. floodable and that when it comes to the archaeology is a bonus that's a good thing that's a good thing okay because uh way back when we've talked about archaeology before you get what's called anaerobic preservation yeah so you get waterlogging in the soil, which stops the oxygen breeding, the, the microbes getting oxygen, which break down and decompose organic matter. So anything like timber, like leather, like bone, like uh, wood. So anything like your wooden cups and bowls, your leather shoes, your leather straps, your leather belts. I mean, extreme examples would be the bog bodies. Oh, things that that God, that, yes. that you that they've occasionally recovered from peat bogs, mm. and because they are anaerobic, an, anaerobic entirely anaerobic environment, yeah. you end up with you know um, literally bodies of people from thousands of years ago. Yeah, that you can you can pick up and you can you can still see you know the stubble and you can yeah, still the, see the Tollan man's still got stubble, mm. and that just blows my mind every time I see his face he just looks like he's sleeping mm. he isn't he totally isn't sleeping no. but um the site at York the site that is now under the Jorvik Viking Center because they had this bright spark idea that when they'd done the excavation in the city that they were going to build a visitor center literally right on top of the site okay so you there's part of the visitor center that's there now that has a glass floor Yes. And you can actually see the excavation surface that's been lit under the glass floor and you can walk over the top of it and see mm. the bits that and are And look there. straight down into it. Look, literally look sort of six inches below your feet through glass panelling and it's right there. And that just, yeah, chills. But good chills. Yeah. So York, the site at Coppergate, has what they call anaerobic preservation. So you get all of those lovely organics that we don't usually get. Okay. So... We get um, housing timbers, up to mm. two metres of housing wall, which shows us techniques. It shows us how they were uh, making those walls, where the axe blows went, when they first put those walls in, where the tool marks are. Wow. So you can see 
everything. You can see the construction style, you can see where they've mended them, you can see where they've created, how they've created these walls. They've got panels still there. They, they excavated whole walls of this stuff. Wow. So we can literally, <clears throat> you can literally see what the houses looked like and how they built them yeah, and what they built extent, them out of. Not, not a complete house, mm. but an awful lot of it. Mm. Mm. And York, yes, it's got the 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 ooze and the hipper, and the hipper isn't big enough or deep enough to get boats down, but the ooze is. Yeah. The ooze is definitely big enough to get a longboat or two into. In case and anybody's up the river ooze. In case anybody's wondering, I believe it's O U S E, isn't it? The ooze, yes. Yeah. Um, it's called the ooze, but it's not ooze as in. I mean, it is because it does, but <laughs> yes. Technically, um, yeah, yes. it's not. It's not double O Z. It's 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 O U S E. O U S E. Yeah, and that's... so you can imagine that one bank of the ooze. It it's now has a lot of buildings on it, but it would have been a very gradual slope originally. Yeah. And so you would have been able to build wooden piers out and have trading ships coming into York, into the north of England. Mm. And Viking York is, it's around for about 75 years. Okay. Sort of late, late 9th century to halfway through the 10th, that it's, York is, it's classed as this kind of the south end of Northumbria at that point, which is odd because we now know it as Yorkshire, but it's the south end of Northumbria that's above the Danelaw that's controlled by Viking rulers for about 75 years. And the city is huge. It's thriving. It's this massive, massive, massive trading port. I mean, in it, was, it, was, it was basically the capital of the Danelaw, wasn't it? Was yeah. It? It's got, because we've got such amazing preservation from the excavation there, and they were able to do such a large area, mm. they got literally tons in weight of artefacts out of this space. Okay. There are 40 thousand artifacts from this five-year dig it wow. is a massive amount of information and even if you dedicated your career to looking at the artifacts from this dig you wouldn't finish them in a lifetime no just the the amount of stuff that they've got out of there so we know that people live there mm -hmm. for a start we know that because we have hundreds of leather shoes okay hundreds of them and they're all made in a particular style of uh, leather shoe, Viking leather shoe. We know that there was industry there because there's evidence of woodworking and there's evidence of metalworking, antlerworking. We've got the evidence of amber working. So they're shipping raw amber in chunks in from the Baltic. And there are craftspeople in Jorvik who are then turning that into finished items, whether it be beads or decorations. And then they're potentially trading it out to other places mm. so they've got these very very skilled craftsmen based in the city of york but they're not using they're, they're buying raw amber in from the baltic or trading having traders bring it over here and trading for it and then finishing it off and sending it elsewhere yeah we have um evidence of bone skates there's about 23 bone ice skates from Jorvik and this is like a long bone that is then flattened you would put your foot on one side of the long bone and then the, it was flattened from from running on the ice on the other side okay and it's got drill holes so you can fit a thong through and fit it to your foot oh, wow. to your shoe and the ooze would freeze yeah so there are 
certainly tales in the sagas and tales in the the mist cycle of them skating up and down frozen rivers to do skating speed skating to see who is fastest and i've just got this image in my head of you know the the middle of winter all these vikings getting up and traipsing down to the river by lunchtime and having speed skating competitions yeah before they all go back home before it gets too dark and then they start the fire up and get the storytelling going and have a proper winter evening of it that sounds good can we do that (laughs) (laughs) um there's evidence of other trade there's madly there's a cowrie shell i'm sorry a what a cowrie shell okay that's in jorvik that they found on the excavation they found um hundreds of pieces of viking ceramic Uh like torxy wear they found the shoes which we've mentioned which are leather so Without that site being in anaerobic preservation, we'd have lost all of the timbers, we'd have lost all of the leather work, we'd have lost a lot of the woodwork we've got. Everything would have gone. We'd have just been left with the metal finds. Yeah, yeah. And maybe some of the bone stuff. We've got dice. Gaming pieces. Gaming dice? Yeah, we've got gaming dice, but they're not quite dice. They're kind of like little... They're not like equal-sided cubes. All right. They're like almost like little rectangles like little short bars almost rather than a a perfect cube i'm sure now you say that i'm sure i remember seeing some dice once that were were kind of long like long rectangular yeah they were they i seem to remember and i'm probably i may be imagining it now you've said it but i seem to remember they were like long light long bars but they came to a point at both ends and they had like four sides so you could you could kind of roll them yeah but they could only i mean i've when i said when i see a d4 Mm. or somebody says a d4 a four-sided die it's it's a it's a tetrahedron pyramid yeah so it's it's like um from the top it's a triangle and it's it's a pyramid shape but it's got three its base is a triangle but i'm sure i remember seeing something about dice that were, were were I'm going to have to look it up. Yeah. If I can find it, I'll put it in the description. Well, there's, there's gaming dice at Jorvik. There's tafel pieces. Gaming pieces? Mm-hmm, yep. Yeah, we've talked about tafel before. Um, there's, yeah, the evidence of industry. There's woodworkers' tools. There's toolkits. Rather than just the finished products that we've got, which we often get when we're looking at industry sites, Yeah. you'll get like, evidence of the waste from that industry, or you'll get, like, uh, if it's a, a smithing site, you'll end up with the, the slag heap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you'll end up with um, the magnetometer will go wild where the furnace once was, yeah. and it will just get all excited and beep at you. Go, oh, it was here. And you're like, yes, I knew it was here. I can see the discoloration gives it away, but never mind. Um, your your magnetometer will go nuts where the fire where the furnace once was because yeah. the heat realigns the the iron elements in the earth all to one direction. Oh wow! Okay. So the magnetometer suddenly picks up that all of this stuff's all going in one direction, rather than going all scattered like hundreds and thousands. And it it's sh- all going in one direction, <clears> and <throat> it, it kind of yells at you a wee bit and goes, "Oh look, it was here!" And it shouts and squeals at you because it thinks it's a submarine. It gets very excited <laughs> and and thinks, "Oh look, there's a submarine!" And no, wait, we're thousands of miles from the sea. What are you doing? <laughs> so yes, it gets very excited and and picks up a positive reading because it's picking up these. Iron things, but I am I am um, right. It's because it's developed from the magnetic anomaly detectors yes, that they used to pick yeah. up. Pick up yeah, the original magnetometers you used to put them on the back of a card. Oh, nice! And you were very excited if your archaeological department had an original magnetometer. Mm. They were ex-military pieces of kit. Yeah, yeah, and they literally had to put them on the back of a car, and you didn't have a horse to pull them. You got students to pull them because the cheaper, you had hundreds. They're of cheaper students. than horses. They were labor. <laughs> yeah, cheaper than cheaper to feed than horses. <clears throat> 
Um, when, sorry, I was just going to say because you mentioned um, tools. Mm. So are we talking? We're, presumably, we're talking about tools that people have like, like broken and thrown away, or oh no, no, like toolkits. <clears throat> but you like see, this pliers, hammers, tongs, all of that kind of stuff. Why would somebody abandon their tools if they weren't broken? I mean, if it was. Like Pompeii or somewhere like that that's that's, yeah, that's you subject can to disaster. Then, yeah. yeah, subject to a sudden disaster, and a lot of it is inverted commas preserved mm. because people either can't, either don't have time to escape or they have don't have time to collect anything together and they just have to run like yeah. blazers. Um, or in in Pompeii's case, you know, it just completely overwhelms them and they're all just left there. Yeah, where they are, then I could understand. But I mean, tools would have been of, of pretty crucial importance to people. Yeah, you've got woodworking tools or metalworking tools. You probably, you know, you've you're thinking, well, is it because their house collapsed and they couldn't get their old toolkit back out? Yeah. Is it because they got given a whole new set of tools so they just put the old ones away? I uh, guess. Yeah. Is it because yeah. the the old tools they they belong to somebody who died and nobody else wanted to use them? Ah. Ah, yeah, you see. So you've got lots and lots of reasons that might not be instant leaps of logic, but reasons why people might not want to use that set of tools. Mm, mm. Or might say, right, well, those were my dad's tools, so I'm going to keep them. But, but I'm not going to use, them, use because... them because they were his tools or my yeah. mum's tools. And I'm going to keep them because they were theirs, but I don't want to actually use them. I want to use my own. Yeah, yeah. So you might end up with a spare set. It's or you fa- might say, right, well, I'm going to give... I'm going to buy a set of tools for my son or my daughter yeah. and pass them down to them, but then that doesn't happen for some reason. You've got a spare set of tools in the house. Yeah. Sorry, I, and now I'm thinking of myself. I'm, I'm thinking of... Um, Gary Larson's cow tools. The, well, apart from Gary Larson's cow tools, which, <laughs> awesome, by the way. Um, didn't, didn't Cinema Sins do some, mention yeah, that the other day? And so, yeah. so like, this, this, this film is... Well, this, 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 this scene is this film's cow version of cow tools. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking now of there's a there's a wonderful scene in um, there's a film a uh, Luc Besson film called Joan of Arc. Yeah. Um, uh, or in some markets it was called The Messenger, and it had um, Mila Jovovich mm-hmm. in it. Or Jovovich, I don't know how she pronounces it, but. Um, and Scar. And Scar. Yes. Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons, yes, of course he was in it as well. Um, and Dustin Hoffman. Mm, what a combination. Now, Dustin Hoffman plays a character. I'm, 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 I've got a point to this. Okay. It's a, not, only, Keep going. only peripheral point. It's a point all the time. Jer- uh, Dustin Hoffman plays um, a character in that film who is re- generally referred to... He's not referred to by name in the, in the film, but he's generally referred to as The Conscience. And it's kind of left to the basically when um, Joan of Arc is um, or Jean I should say is um, uh, she's been captured she's in prison mm. she's in a cell she's awaiting her trial at the hands of the the, the, the church and the the, the king I mm. think or or the secular authorities anyway um, and she's going through a lot of the things that have happened to her to bring her to this particular pass and. Um, there's one scene where uh, this 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 ca- this figure appears in her cell, and, and it's left to the viewer to decide: is this somebody who's 
you know, is this a supernatural being that's appearing to her? Is this some kind of vision that she's having? Is it a hallucination? Mm. Or is it just a metaphorical representation of her thought processes? Mm. Um, and the conscience appears, Dustin Hoffman appears, and he starts questioning all the assumptions that she'd made throughout the film. So she's basically become this messenger from God because she was getting these signs. And one of the signs was she found a sword in a in field. A field. Yeah. yeah. And there's this wonderful sequence where he says to her, well, what, what did you think? You know, why, why did you think you were a messenger from God? Well, I found that there was these signs. Well, what, like what signs? Well, like this sword I found in this field. And he's like, well, but that wasn't a sign. That was a sword in a field. Mm. And she's like, yes, but how, how could it have possibly been put there if it wasn't as a sign from God to me? And he's like, well, try this and he comes up with a situation where there's like he, he, he shows her like a vision of, of two two guys fighting in a field and one of them gets killed and the other and drops his sword and the other one just walks away maybe that's how it got to be there maybe it fell off somebody's cart when they were they were mm. sort of going across the field um and he says and that's without this and that's without thinking about the completely implausible and it just shows you a vision of a guy walking through the field with a sword in his hand and just throwing it away <laughs> and he says all these possibilities and you had to settle for this. And there's this hallelujah chorus and this sword comes down the <laughs> beam of light from the clouds. And it just reminded me of, of, of that for a second, because it's like I'm sitting here thinking, well, you know, why would these why would these tools have still been here? It yeah. could have been, And then you're going, well, it could have been this or it could have been that or it could have been. The, yeah, that yeah, I suppose yeah, it could really. <laughs> yeah, you get lots of. When you get industrial sites, and by industry I don't mean like, you know, 17th century mills and yeah, yeah. that kind of scaled industry. It's what they call cottage industry, mm -hmm. which generally means that you've got somebody working either in or in close proximity to where they live. Yeah. So they're not living in the factory kind of mass production space. There's maybe one or two people in a small space producing goods on a very, very small scale. Yeah. It's not industrialised, it's not mass processing. And so you have often evidence of, if you've got a woodworker, you might have evidence of that timber, or you might get evidence of tools. If you've got a metal worker, you might have evidence of waste metal or scrap metal that they're saving to turn into something. Yeah. You might have evidence of that furnace space, that fire space. You might have evidence of trade in that, in that space. You might have evidence of tools and tool use. You might then find somebody's human remains fairly close by and the osteologists still go, yep, they had arthritis through their hands because they were, and they, they had other stuff in their bones because they were constantly breathing in the smoke from the fire and it's got into all of their, yeah, yeah. their bones and their teeth and they can pick it straight out. Mm -hmm. So you've got these very, very small scale industrial spaces. And one of the other things at York, one of the other industries that you've got that they identified from Coppergate, they identified this sort of row of very, very close, like side to side houses with these long backyards out the back. Okay. And the backyards, these yard spaces had evidence of this industry in it. So you've got these craftspeople in this very, very close proximity on Coopergate on the Street of Cups. Yeah. Because they were, they also found evidence of wood turning, pole lathe. Okay. Turning of cups and bowls and plates. So they called it Coopergate, the, the street of cups, which then becomes our Coppergate. Nice. You also have evidence of, literally of money makers. So you have money dies, and it's like a, 
a cylindrical metal die, like a punch die. A die stamp. A die stamp. Mm. So it has a design imprinted on one end and the other end is impacted by a hammer. Okay. So you've got three or four coin dies that were found in the archaeological record. And a coin die is something that's fairly jealously guarded because coins uh, at this time are a way, like, they're almost propaganda. They show you who the ruling head is. They show you what their achievements are and what associations they have. So you get the, I think it's called the St. Peter's Penny, that you can go to the Jorvik Viking Centre now and you can punch die a little coin that has the same design on it as one of these dies that was found in the Jorvik excavation. They, they're called like a moneylender's die. Okay. Because only certain people had a license to stamp coinage. Because you've got probably a good solid barter system going on, and we certainly have evidence of things like merchant scales, so they're bartering by weight of metal against an object. There is a thing you have talked to me before about called hack silver. Hack silver, yes. Which was a sort of a a, a kind of a fallback currency kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically much, it was... Yeah, it's, it is a fallback currency. So yeah, you can go somewhere else and they might not recognise the coinage you've got in exchange for the coinage that or the, the items that you want. But... So you find something that's made out of silver or, or whatever it might be and you, mm. and you break it up into the right amount of weight... Yeah, so you'll you'll often find in Viking hordes that you've got arm rings, but they're not whole arm rings. They've been cut with pliers or they've been snapped or broken into pieces. Mm-hmm. And this is what's called hack silver, mm. is pieces of objects or pieces of arm rings or metal. So you might wear your wealth in arm rings yeah. up until the point where you need to break it up into smaller bits so that you can pay for part of something. And then you've got the rest of the bits left over. Yeah. But they were, but they were using they were using actual coinage as well. So they yes. were using like a, a proper formatted. Yeah, well, formatted ish, but yeah, <laughs> kind of formatted. <laughs> so yeah, you've got moneylenders dies, mm. and they are, yeah, they they blow my mind a little bit that mm. there was somebody, at least one person in York, if not two or three, that were licensed to make coins. I suppose it makes sense though if it's that if it's that important and influential a, a, a town. Mm, massive, um, massive trading centre. Yeah. And if it's a huge trading centre, then I suppose it makes sense to have a mint of some sort. Yeah, coming to to keep the keep the currency in 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 play, I guess. Oh yeah, alongside all of this sort of bartering by weight and mm. hack silver going on as well at the same time. Well, that's the sort of Viking version of Bitcoin. Yeah, literally a bit of coin. Yeah, yeah. but um, this is what I'm saying. It's like it's it's a uh, where the the advantage that's often declared for things like bitcoin and and um uh, the cryptocurrencies anyway is the fact that they are very informal and they're not under the control of a state or mm. a, a, a central bank or anything like that and so it's, it's a similar sort of thing it's like your 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 hack silver is your cryptocurrencies you can trade privately without having to yeah resort to the coinage yeah. part of the deal i mean trade yeah the trade in in Jorvik, as well as like the amber coming in presumably from the baltic mm. you've also got I think there's about 23 pieces of silk that are found, silk finds that were found in that dig. And if you imagine you're kind of digging away with your trowel and you come across a piece of silk in the ground and you've got to get it out and preserve it. Wow. That is just mind blowing. And then you find that that silk is like, you know, a thousand years old and you're just like, whoa. So of those pieces of silk, you've got a, a woman's silk 
like a very very simple silk cap yeah that is is whole is is in one piece and you've got other pieces fragments of silk as well and you're just like where are they getting silk from silk for goodness sake in viking york they're getting mm. silk they're also you know getting somewhere along the way there's a cowrie shell yeah yeah come back there's I... all sorts of other things that there's this evidence of these huge trading things that they're bringing you know raw materials into the city and having specialist craftspeople finish it off if there's a if there's a heaven for silkworms mm. i like to think that at some point back in the 80s a silkworm looked down from heaven mm-hmm. from silkworm heaven and went i did that and that's lasted, right? Talk about talk about work quality, right? I did that, and that's lasted a thousand years. That all came out of my butt. Well, yeah, granted, there is that detail, but you know. <laughs> now that's what I call craftsmanship. Yeah. I'm gonna just rummage myself. Sorry, rummaging, rummage, rummage, rummage. So yeah, Viking York kind of blows my brain a little bit. So we're going to talk a little bit more about it in episode 102. So as per usual, we're going to throw some links to all of this good, good stuff in the description. Go and have a nosy about for yourself if you want to find us online. You can find me. I'm Suzanne Martin. You can find me on Facebook under that name or I'm on Twitter at Geetha in Jeans. And if for some reason, I'll leave it to you, uh, you want to find me, um, you're gonna have to come and join our Discord. Sorry about that. That's all good. Because that's basically yeah. my that's basically it's my soul out space at the moment, isn't it? That's my soul online kind of manner, if you like. Mm. So uh, pop along and join our Discord channel. Where would our lovely listeners find our Facebook page and Discord channel? If you go to Facebook uh, and do a search for Frithcast Pod, that's Frithcast and Pod but no spaces, um, you'll find your way to our page and uh, our Discord group and our um, uh, Facebook um, uh, Facebook also group, I guess. Our Discord server and our Facebook group are all linked from in there. Yeah, so come along and say hi. Come and join us around the virtual campfire. You will be very, very welcome. The kettle is always on. You can come on in, warm your knees, have a bit of chatter. It's all good. Lovely listeners, we're going to leave you just having this mellow moment after our episode 100 party around the virtual campfire in that kind of quiet, mellow part of the evening. Mellow moments. Do, do, do. I don't know the rest of the words. I'm sorry. Right, I'm just kind of... I'm chilling out and listening to this. This is great. I'm getting duetted and everything. Oh, dear. Lovely listeners, we're going to leave you around the virtual campfire for today and we will talk to you again next time for episode 102 for the second part of our exploration of Viking York, Viking Jorvik. Talk to you then. then. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye.